Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, Investors Chronicle, and Annabel Brody Smith, Communications Director of the Association of Investment Companies. It's a milestone year for investment trusts, with the oldest foreign and colonial investment trust celebrating its 150th anniversary on Monday. But Annabel, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with investment trusts, what exactly are they? Well, investment trusts are companies. They're listed on the stock exchange and they invest in a diversified portfolio of assets. And like other companies, they have independent boards of directors who are there to look after shareholders' interests. And usually there's a professional fund manager or a team of professional fund managers who manage the assets of the company. Okay, so basically they're funds. But they, they are listed funds. on the stock exchange. Right. Now, these funds, investment trusts, what sort of assets do they invest in? Right. Well, they invest in equities, so companies here in the UK, globally, and also all over the world. So Europe, Japan, emerging markets. And also we have specialist companies who are investing in sectors like, for example, technology. But that's not all they invest in. They can invest in bonds. They can invest in unquoted companies. And we have a big private equity sector and VCTs, venture capital trusts, who do just that. But then also there's alternative assets, so property, infrastructure. We've seen the the rise of a big debt sector at the moment, liquid forms of debt renewable energy. So really, it's a very diverse set of assets which they invest in. And I should add assets that you couldn't go out and buy yourself. Absolutely. And also, we have a particular advantage with the close-ended structure that makes us particularly suitable for investing in illiquid assets. So things like unquoted companies, property, actual infrastructure projects, the close ended structure allows the investment company, investment trust manager to take a long term view. And when times are tough, they don't have to sell those assets to meet redemptions like an open ended funds. They can take a long term view, ride out the volatility and look to the future. Now, with that in mind, um, how can investors use investment trusts in their portfolios? Well, we have a lot of investors using investment trusts in their portfolios. Clearly, it depends whether you're looking for long-term capital growth, income or a combination of the two. And we have investment trusts that cater for all those needs. Clearly, a lot of investors are looking for long-term growth. Perhaps they're saving for retirement or for something special in the future. Other investors are looking for income. So they're then particularly these days with pensions freedom, they're staying invested for a longer time and they need income in retirement. But but there's other reasons as well that motivates people to invest in investment companies, for example, saving for children. We've got a lot of people with um, investment trusts in their portfolio to save for children for the long term. But I think the thing I would like to emphasize is these are long term investments. We say at least five years preferably longer and clearly as your listeners are very sophisticated but it's for the long term and a diversified portfolio you wouldn't put all your eggs in one basket that sounds all very useful but i have to ask investments go in a fashion really quickly so why have investment trusts stood the test of time i mean 150 years it's not a short time is it it's a very long time it doesn't get much more long term than this I think there are three reasons. I think the first thing is they have got a very strong 
long-term performance records. I've just been looking over the last 10 years. If you'd invested in the average investment trust over the last 10 years, it would be up 142%. And that performance record gets better the more long-term you look. So, for example, over 20 years, the average investment trust is up 504%. So long-term performance is one of them. But we are a very innovative sector. We've been continually adapting to meet shareholders' needs. So whether it's emerging markets or, for example, in the last 10 years, we've had a very low interest rate environment, we've been providing income. And that's been the key thing. Alternative assets, obviously very useful for income opportunities. But also we have other advantages that make us very strong when it comes to income. And then finally, we have got durability. We are a robust structure. We have 23 companies that are over 100 years old. And those have survived the First World War, the Second World War, the tough times of the 70s. More recently, we've had the tech boom and bust and the financial crisis. And I think that shows that we really have a structure which can endure tough times and come through and thrive. No, like you were saying, it's a long time. Have investment trusts changed much since the first one launched 150 years ago? Well, they most definitely have changed, but it's interesting that the first investment trust was launched to meet the needs of the moderate investor, the private investor, and investment trusts still have that objective today. Now, how they meet that, the needs of that investor has changed quite a lot. The first investment trust was, was mainly invested in government bonds. The very first ones invested in the emerging markets of the day. 150 years ago, the emerging market of the day was the US. Yes, it, it's hard to understand, but that is the case. And they were invested in US railroads, tin and uh, copper mines, rubber, commodities. From there, they moved into equities in the 20th century. And today, 50% of the sector's assets are in alternative assets. So we have had a period of evolution and they have changed to meet investors' needs. I suppose a point about today, though, um, maybe 150 years ago, it was the only way for private investors to invest. Nowadays, there are so many choices available to UK investors. So why should investors opt for an investment trust rather than an open-ended active fund or, what's more current now, a low-cost tracker such as an exchange-traded fund? Right. Well, I think performance is one of those reasons. Our long-term performance record holds up very well if you compare us with open-ended funds and indices as well. Interestingly, Canaccord Genuity just did some research, just looking at a fairly short time, five years. Their research proved that 64% of actively managed equity investment companies have outperformed a relevant benchmark. And actually, if you look at specific sectors like UK smaller companies or Japan or UK equity income, three quarters have outperformed a relevant benchmark. So performance is very important. So for example, if we look at those 10-year performance data, again, the average investment trust is up 142% over 10 years. The average open-ended fund is up 96%. 
But that's not the whole story. The reason is why have they outperformed so well over the long term? And it is the structure, that closed-ended structure, there's a fixed number of shares, allows investment trust managers to take a long-term view of their portfolio. They do not have to sell their stocks to meet redemptions like an open-ended manager would, or they and they don't have to buy a whole load of stock or investments when things are valued highly. So they can just sit there, they know how much money they're earning, and they can take a long-term view. In, in addition, investment trusts have the ability to gear. That means they can borrow. Perhaps a manager sees some stocks or some companies that she thinks of great opportunity. They don't have to sell their existing portfolio. They can borrow, invest in those stocks. And the idea is that over the long term, those stocks will increase in value to such an extent that they will make a profit for the investor and also pay the cost of the borrowing. And over the long term, gearing has worked very well for the sector. They have income advantages, and this has been particularly critical in the last 10 years when interest rates have been so low. So particularly when it comes to a consistent record of paying dividends, investment trusts don't have to distribute all their income every year like an open-ended fund. They can retain up to 15% each year and then keep that in the revenue reserve and then when times are tough, so for example, when the financial crisis occurred and banks cut their dividends or when BP has an oil spill and cuts their dividend, when times are tough, they can use that revenue reserve to boost their income. And this is why we have 21 investment companies which have a track record of over 20 years of increasing their dividends. And we actually have four that have a record of over 50 years of increasing their dividends. And finally, I think the independent board of directors is very important. They're there to look after shareholders' interests. They're there to keep an eye on the manager. They provide an additional layer of scrutiny and oversight to what the manager's doing. And interestingly, over a third of the industry have reduced their charges to benefit shareholders since the beginning of 2013. And clearly, investment trust boards have been very influential on that and they have been negotiating those reductions to benefit shareholders. So I think there are a lot of reasons why investment trusts are offer investors a sensible investment for the long term. Some pretty compelling reasons there but there's one thing I'd like to pick up on. You mentioned investment trusts can gear aka borrow money, take on debt. Now this is great if that debt they borrow gets invested in the right thing and it goes up. But if the investment trust manager makes the wrong choice and invests that debt in the wrong thing, that can compound losses. So would you say that the ability to gear or take on debt makes investment trusts riskier than other funds? Do you know, what I would say is it makes them more volatile. Clearly, gearing, you know, when markets are tough, if you're heavily geared, that's going to act against your interests. You, you know, the thing about gearing is it magnifies performance. So in good times, it's going to give you better performance. In poor times for markets, it's going to give you worse performance. Now, I have to say, 
let's get this in perspective. The average gearing level for the industry at the moment is 6% of their assets in borrowing. So that it's very, very low. And actually, around 50% of investment trusts do not gear. But I think it's fair to say that you will have a more volatile um, performance with investment trusts. But it is those features that are giving you the volatility over the short term which are giving you outperformance over the long term. Some investment trusts charge a performance fee, something that's virtually unheard of among active open-ended funds and not used on passive funds such as ETFs. Is this fair and should investors avoid investment trusts which levy a performance fee? Well, I must admit, I do know some open-ended funds that have performance fees. There's obviously a few, but 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 less than in the investment trust industry. I don't think you can generalise on this. I think it comes down to individual investors' views and you have to take the investment trust as a whole when you're doing research and charges, of course, is one important element. Interestingly, there has been a trend in the industry to abolish performance fees, particularly amongst the more retail sectors. Um, And I think that's been because the investment trust boards have taken the decision that they want certainty over charges for their investors and they want to compete with open-ended funds. Having said that, I really don't think you can generalise because some investors quite like performance fees you know you might find this strange but they like them they pay less when the fund is not performing they pay more when it is if the performance fee is sensibly set and we have guidance on how to set performance fees for boards it can work very well so i don't think you can generalize you have to look do your research look at the whole and then take a decision one thing that um, i've gathered from what you're saying there's probably quite a lot of variables with investment trusts so When you're choosing an investment trust for your portfolio, what would you say are the key things you should look for? Right. Well, first of all, you look at performance. Now, we all know it's no guarantee to the future, but it's what we've got at the moment. So we've got to take a look at it. I like to look at different time periods. I also like to look at discrete year-on-year performance. I think it gives you a good idea of how that company's been performing in different circumstances. Clearly, you'd look at the manager's track record and find out a bit more about him. Has he got a lot of experience in this type of asset class? How has he done over the long term? You would look at the charges. Clearly, the higher the charge, the more it's eaten into your investments. You would have a look at the charges and the charging structure. If you're an income investor, you would definitely look at the dividend data. You'd look at the yield. But, you know, there's some other data as well you could look at. Is it got a high yield and is sort of stable or is it a growing dividend. You'd look at those sort of things. You would take a look at gearing. You'd look at the gearing figure in comparison to the sector. And therefore, that would give you a good idea as to how highly geared this company is. Uh, You would also have a look at whether the company is trading at a discount or premium and whether that you'd compare that again to the sector average. The average discount for our sector at the moment is 5%. The discount is the difference between the share price and the asset value, so the total of the assets, and it's calculated as a percentage. So you would have a look at that and see how different it is from the sector. And finally, perhaps you'd take a look at the portfolio. I always like to take it at the portfolio, see what are the top investments of the company, you know, see whether I'm happy with those. But that's really, if you did all that, you'd be doing a really good research job. That's helpful. But where can you get this information? 
Well, you're not going to be surprised that I'm going to say the AIC's website is a very good first port of call for investors. But we do have all that data I just mentioned for each member company on our site, plus also the sector comparisons. But there are other places you can go to, obviously, trustnet.com, morningstar.co.uk, Investors Chronicle itself, clearly, you know, has a lot of information. Yeah, as you mentioned, your website, the Association of Investment Companies, or AIC website, has a lot of information. But can you actually tell us a bit more about the organisation? You obviously provide information on trusts. And, you know, what else do you do? Yeah, well, we're the Trade Association for Investment Companies. Our members are Investment Trusts, Investment Companies, Venture Capital Trusts. The boards are the directors. These are our members. So actually, we represent the end shareholder, which is quite different from a lot of trade organisations. They normally represent the manufacturer of the product. We represent the end user. We're helping our members, those boards, deliver value for shareholders over the long term. So what does that mean? Well, we do a lot of work on lobbying. We're trying to produce the best regulatory and technical environment for investment trusts. So lobbying the government. We have lobbying Europe. Um, We work with our member companies because they're non-executive directors, so they might not be living and breathing investment trusts all the time. So we make sure they're up to date. We have regular roundtable meetings. We send them information, the latest regulatory updates. Make sure we had a big conference recently where we talked about the key industry issues make sure they're on top of the industry. And then also, of course, we do provide information. We have our website, we have our communication, we do advisor and wealth manager training and information. So I think that sort of sums up what we do. Finally, important question. Investment trusts have been going for 150 years. Do you think they'll go for another 150 years? Well, you won't be surprised that I'm saying yes, they will. And the reason being, I think performance, very, we've been delivering strong to long-term performance for investors for a very long time. That performance also includes dividends and income. We have been an incredibly innovative sector. We have been adapting to meet investors' needs. And now that we have 50% of our industry in alternative assets, I think really exemplifies that. And we have survived some particularly tough times and we have every intention of doing that in the future. We've successfully adapted to meet shareholders' needs and that is exactly what we intend to continue to do. Thank you, Annabelle. Some really helpful tips. And CV Investors Chronicle website for our interview with Paul Niven, who runs Foreign and Colonial Investment Trust, which turns 150 on Monday. Now, another investment trust veteran albeit not quite as aged as foreign and colonial, is Murray International, which launched in 1907. Taha, what's the focus of this trust? Well, this trust is a global equity income trust. It's very popular and, as you said, been around for quite a long time, managed by a person called Bruce Stout since 2004. What it tries to do is it looks to beat the market quite over the long term and then it likes to provide a higher income than most of its peers. It uses equities and it uses some bonds to help this as well. Murray International recently published its annual results for 2017. How did it do? Well, it was was quite a good year, but this needs a little bit of context. So the portfolio returned 15%, the share price rose 11%, and this was ahead of the benchmark rise of 13%. But what this was, this was actually quite a lot lower than 2016, where the portfolio was at 40% and the share price was at 50%. But again, the context for this is 
2012-2015 was a very, very difficult year for this investment trust. Over the four years, it only did 6% when the benchmark did 50%. So in the context of this, 2017 was quite a good year. Shareholders were happy and analysts were happy as well. You're saying it had a, a bad period a while ago, but last couple of years, it's, um, it's done much better. Why has Murray International's performance improved? The main reason for this is emerging markets. Um, as we spoke about last week on the podcast, emerging markets had a very difficult early part of this decade and have improved in the last two years. And Murray International has been a big beneficiary of this. The manager likes Latin America and Brazil has been one of the best performers in the last couple of years. He also likes some of the Asian emerging markets. But more importantly, what he doesn't like is North America, which has been where a lot of the returns came from in the between 2012 and 2015. And the reason for this is kind of twofold. He's not that impressed with the state of developed economies. He prefers um, economies that are kind of self-reliant rather than relying on debt. And the same is for the companies that he invests in as well. A lot of them in the US he thinks are debt laden, which is a term that he's used quite a lot and he just doesn't like them. You said that Murray International is a global equity income fund. So what kind of dividends did it pay in 2017? It's increased its dividend in 2017 by 5.3%, which is um, it's quite a high, quite increase. So if that goal goes through, it'd be quite a good increase for shareholders. At the moment, it's yielding about 4.1%, which is uh, one of the highest in the AIC global equity income sector. Now, you said that um, the um, trust has achieved quite attractive dividend growth um, in its last year, but will it be able to continue growing its dividends? The general consensus among analysts um, is yes, and there's a few reasons for this. So the current dividends it receives from companies is about 75 million, and it only has to pay out 63 million if this dividend rise that is uh, suggested goes through, which means it's got a pretty good dividend cover. On top of that, it's got another 75 million of reserves, which means that should it ever struggle to receive dividends from the companies it invests in, it has quite a lot of cash to be able to make that up. And also, more importantly, the board has committed to having a progressive dividend policy. Thank you, Taha. And see his full report on Murray International's 2017 results in this week's magazine and the website. Now, you've also been looking at a type of fund you most definitely wouldn't want in your portfolio. What is this? So, you know, this is, and it's become more of a common term, this is known as a closet tracker. And, and what this is, is basically, this is a fund that is, well, tells investors that it's going to be managed actively, suggests that it's going to outperform the market. But then what it really is doing is not investing in the manager or the technique to be able to do this. And it's just tracking the index, but then charging for an actively managed portfolio. Okay, that's not good at all. So what can you as an investor do to try and avoid investing in one of these? So there are quite a few things that you can do. More and more professional investors, because this is becoming an increasingly bigger problem, so what they are using is mathematical metrics to see how the underlying portfolio compares to that other benchmark. So an example of this is called the active share ratio. And what this does is it looks at the underlying holdings, the, the weightings that the investor management has put into this, and how this compares to the benchmark, and it provides a percentage based on how different it is. So the higher the active share, the better and more actively managed the portfolio is likely to be. That sounds good, but is this information easy to get hold of? Yes and no. So the information is out there, it just it sometimes takes a long time to go and find it. With example for active share, there are a handful of companies that have started putting this on their monthly fact sheets. However, unfortunately, this is the exception rather than the norm. If, for example, the fund you're looking at doesn't have this information, 
you know, is there anything else you can use? Are there any other ways you can avoid investing in, in closet trackers? Sure, there's definitely some uh, a lot simpler ways to be able to do this. So the first one is just looking at the holdings in the fund and then comparing that to the benchmark. So what you can do is you can look at a fund's annual report and that will have a full listing of the holdings that are in there. And then you can go on to whichever benchmark that might be. So, for example, if you're looking at a UK equity fund in the FTSE 100, you can go to the FTSE 100 website and look at the benchmark holdings in there and just look at both and see if they're exactly the same. If they are, then you probably have a problem. Another way is to use some of the charting techniques on the platforms. And basically what a closet tracker will do is it will always, always underperform the benchmark. But more importantly, it will always underperform it by exactly the same amount every single year because it's just copying what it's meant to be doing. Are there any sort of investment areas where these closet trackers are particularly prevalent and perhaps you should be especially careful in? Definitely there are. So for the average UK investor, the most likely place you're going to see this is in large cap UK equities. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, the large cap UK equity market is quite efficient. And what that means is that when information is released to the market, it's very quickly factored in into the share price of the company that this is about. So that actually makes outperforming the market quite difficult because active managers don't have that much of an advantage compared to somewhere like emerging markets where things are less clear. But the other reason for this is that UK investors generally have a bias towards buying UK large caps, which means there are a lot of products in this space. So what fund groups know is that if they release a subpar product, it's likely going to get lost in just the myriad of products that are out there making it easier to survive. Thank you, Taha. Some really helpful points. And also see this week's big theme in the fund section for Taha's full guide on how to avoid investing in a closet tracker. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can also read more on investment trusts and Murray International in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.